Welcome to Defining Rules, a podcast about jobs you may have never heard of. I'm your host, Kate Barrett. Let's explore the possibilities of what's out there so that we can find our perfect role. This week, I have a very special guest on the podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Quentin Morris, who is a concert violinist, college professor, social entrepreneur, and filmmaker. And Quentin started a nonprofit organization called Key to Change, and it is an organization that inspires underserved youth through world-class music instruction and supports their development as self-aware leaders. And Quentin is so great and inspirational and shares how he has learned to work smart on the things that will lead to the greatest impact how to follow the guidance of that inner voice, and how responding to setbacks and challenges can create greater opportunities than you could have originally imagined. Quentin is such a great example of how you can combine several different areas of your life to create something truly impactful. With that, let's jump into episode 10 with Dr. Quentin Morris. Quentin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to jump in our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Okay, first question. What is your official job title? That's hard. I was thinking about this because I have so many job titles. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Name them and then we'll jump in. Well, I'm a concert violinist. That's a job title. Yes. I am an educator, more specifically a college professor. So that's a title. Mm -hmm. I'm an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, and I'm a filmmaker. Awesome. So I do those four things. Awesome. And you can pick a few because I know you are a man of many hats. But my next question is, how would you define your role? And we can either have that be to specifically the area we're going to talk about today. You can Mm. talk about how your worlds kind of overlap. But how do you how would you define your role? You know, that's that's that is a great question. And maybe I'll go really broad with this. But I, I define my role, my role and my responsibility. Can I put those two together? Absolutely. I would say my role is um, as a leader, a thought leader, someone who, and, and also with my responsibility, I feel like I'm someone who tends to think outside the box, execute really crazy ideas outside the box. Um, And I feel like that's kind of my role and my responsibility to do really innovative things that are different that no one else is doing and make sure that those things have a lasting impact on lots of other people. And, And I think one of the reasons that that is my responsibility and just my role is because of the type of person I am. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty daring. Um, I'm not afraid of failure. 
I'm not afraid to fall down. I'm not afraid to ask questions either. Um, and, and, and so I think that is why I have that role and that responsibility in my field. And, and, and I think that's why to your earlier question, which was, you know, what is your title? I think that's why I have so many different titles is because, um, I have, you know, this this one role or these different roles that encompass lots of different areas and lots of different fields that um that that need my attention and need my support. Yeah, and that's exactly why I was so excited to sit down for this conversation because I think it's how you've taken all of these different areas and created something so unique. I think that's Mm -hmm. the inspiration and that's the nudge to others to go look around. How can you create something about, you know, from all of the pieces that you have? Right. Right. And that takes guts. Yeah. That takes guts and that takes skill and, um, bravery and, uh, and and also it takes you knowing who you are. It takes you knowing who you are as a person and understanding what your purpose is. I'm so I'm eager to get into the conversation about your organization, but first I'd love to hear a little bit about you growing up as a kid and maybe you your journey on finding your purpose and finding your skills and embracing having a unique way of seeing the world. Would you share a little bit about how you've developed finding who you are and, and coming into this role of really entrepreneur? Hmm. Well, I, I think growing up, yeah, I, I was, I grew up in the Mm eighties and, um, it was tough. I was, I was the kid who wanted to be liked by everybody. You know, I I did everything I could to make sure that people liked me. Um gosh, and that that was a really hard lesson that took decades for me to undo. Mm-hmm. Um and, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, in a lot of the different circles I was in, I was the only black kid or the only black male either in the class in the orchestra um so you know i wanted to be liked in and i adapted to my surroundings a lot Mm -hmm. um and and was it always healthy for me no um and then add you know i'm also gay so (laughs) growing up in the 80s man the amount of teasing and taunting yeah. and, and it was terrible. And at some point, you know, I just kind of had to take, I had to take a stand of this is who I am. And I had to learn how to be unapologetically black mm-hmm. and also unapologetically gay um, and, and understand my worth and that, if if you don't like me or you don't understand me or even know my story, that's none of my business and I don't care. But 
I'm not going to live my life for you anymore. And I think that that, that um, really started to turn the, the wheels really started to turn for me after the third time I played at Carnegie hall, um, which was in 2014. That was my third recital there. And um, I was going through a lot that year. I was going up for tenure at my university at the time. And I was playing my recital and, and I was, you know, I was doing a lot of things because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. Or I felt like, um, people wanted me to do those things or I was trying to please other people. And while I'm, I'm very thankful for my accomplishments and, and, and I'm thankful for those experiences. Um, I think at the root of where I was in that time, I, I, I was just trying to please other people, you know, that was really tough. And, and, um, and I, I learned some really valuable lessons about, what does it really mean to walk in your purpose and owning who you are and, um, and your, the story that you tell of who you, you know, what your purpose is and, and what you want to do with your life. Um, that was kind of the beginning of the journey for me. And so I broke off from my management that year and started my own, my own company. Um, and, uh, that was the scariest and smartest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Mm-hmm. One of them, I should say, was breaking off from management and going off on my own. And that was when I really started to say, okay, this is who I am. This is my purpose. Um, because I was always told that through various professors and teachers when I was in school, like that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't, there was no place for me in the music business. I had one professor during my undergrad who was just vicious and cruel, um, who made it a point to tell me all the time, like, you're not going to have a career in music. You're not, you're, you're fooling yourself. You would say that Quentin, you are fooling yourself. There's no way you're going to play Carnegie Hall, become a college professor. No way. You're too late in the game, Quentin. Mm. Like find something else to do. And he would say that to me regularly. Mm. And, um, and I had transferred, you know, this is North Carolina school of the arts. I transferred there from, do uh from Xavier University, which I was a student at. Mm-hmm. And um and and so, you know, I knew there was this little small voice on the inside of me. Intuition, my own spirit, the universe, I don't know, but yeah. It said, you keep going. There's space for you in this business. And Man, all I can tell you, I had a lot of people. I'm sure I should have bet a lot of money against people because I'd be filthy rich by now. Yeah. Because so many people were just, they would have bet thousands of dollars that I would not have made it. But I'll tell you, 
and I'll wrap up this my answer by just saying this, that I wasn't the most talented kid growing up, going through music school. I was not the most talented, but I outworked everybody. Mm-hmm. I did. I, I worked and I'm still like that till this day. Um, I worked my ass off. I still work my ass off, but I, and I think that is my competitive advantage is I will outwork you. I will, I will find out what I need to know. So not only do I pass, but that I excel. Mm. And so when people look at me, they're like, how are you able to do X, Y, and Z? It's because I worked. Yeah. You know, and, and I continue to work and um, because I work like people are trying to take it away from me because mm-hmm. when I was an undergrad, there was someone who was telling me, quit, you're not good enough, you know, and you hear, if you hear that for so long, you start to believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and there were moments when I, of course, doubted myself, but I, but that little voice was like, keep going keep going you can't you won't see it tomorrow you won't see it next year but you just keep going and i'm so glad i did because it's paid off for me in in ways that 20 years ago i couldn't have even imagined my, was, yeah that's amazing my my career is bigger than what i could have ever imagined when i was 23 it's bigger and better. So, you know, as a college professor, you know, or even just as a teacher, you have these aspirations of your students of what you think they can do. And and my my college professor, you know, when I was an undergrad, he was like, eh, maybe you'll become a music teacher, like an elementary school music teacher. Hmm. That's that's that was his vision for me, was that. Now there of course there's nothing wrong with that but I was like no I'm 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 going to become a college professor. And he's like no way, no way. Mm. But I'm telling you that that voice, that little voice on the inside of me said don't you dare quit, but you keep working. And and it was lonely because I remember like there wasn't, you know, there was like a small handful of people and and all of the schools that I went to, honestly, there was always like a small handful of people who were like working, like their lives depended on it. Like I worked, like my life depended on it. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, and I'm, and now it's interesting because looking back on it, like I gravitated towards the really tough, demanding teachers, and like my professor during my doctorate. At, at UT Austin was super tough on me. And I'm so thankful that he was because he, I didn't understand it at the time, but he was preparing me for what was to come. Mm. Um, he saw something in me, um, contrary to my professor in my undergrad who did it. Um, but yeah, I, it just, I learned. And actually he's the one who really taught me how to work hard and smart. He, he yeah. really did. He he gave me an am- amazing gift. So, 
all that and 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 it and it I mean, I'm in music, but I mean that transfers over to tech. It transfers yeah. over to you know what I'm saying? Like entrepreneurs, you've got to work smart. You got to work really hard and you got to work really smart. You've got to be resilient and you've got to be able to persevere through some tough times and God knows I have. Yeah. Well, you're creating your own map. Like that's that's right. That's what's really interesting is you're not following someone else's journey. You are totally walking into the unknown. And so you have to be ready for what stands ahead because you can't prepare. So that's that resilience. And I love hearing that your experience and your story of that voice inside because I think everyone, well, not everyone, but many people can relate to I don't know what my thing is. I just know I keep going and I keep following that little voice Mm -hmm. and not allowing those outside influences to have more, you know, weight than they're worth. Yeah. Because I had a lot of friends. I mean, I had friends who went to Juilliard and, you know, New England Conservatory in Indiana. And I mean, and they were skilled, much more skilled than I was. But I know with some of them, they didn't work. They did yeah. not work hard. They just, they just, they, 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 um, they went by their talent. And, and, and I, I remember when I first got my, my job as a professor, a couple of my colleagues were very admittedly jealous. Because they were like, well, what is it that you're doing that I'm not doing? Like, I had one co- one colleague who told me, I'm a better player than you. I'm better. I went to Juilliard for undergrad and master's degree. You didn't, you didn't go to Juilliard. How come you get to teach? How come I'm not teaching? I can't get a college professorship somewhere. How did you get that? What'd you do? Well... I worked, hmm. you know, um, and 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 not to even put that person down, but like, yeah. I, I think in in music, there's it's kind of unspoken rule that, well, I practice really hard and I sound brilliant. Everything should just come to me, and that's not how it works. You've got to work for it, and and and. Hard work, hard, smart work will outdo, outrun, outperform talent any day. When you say hard, smart work, how do you differentiate and decide what to work on versus what is just treading water? Mm, Well, if you're treading water, then you're working you're working real hard, right? Or, or right. maybe you're not working hard. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think for me, smart work is asking yourself, what is the next right move that mm-hmm. you're supposed to make? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, for me, um, when I was in Boston, I was a master's student at the Boston Conservatory. I had mentioned earlier a lot of my colleagues were at the Juilliard School. They were all in New York City. They were either there or at Manhattan School or Manus or CUNY Graduate Center, wherever. They were all in New York. And I wanted to be in New York so bad. And I applied to all the schools 
in New York, like all the top music schools in New York City. Manus College. I didn't apply to Manhattan, but I applied to Juilliard, Manus, and CUNY Graduate Center. Took the audition at Juilliard, didn't get in. <laughs> And I was like, ah, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I played really well at that audition, but they said no, um, took the audition at Manus college and bombed it. Oh, I was so furious and so upset. So I had one last one and it was at CUNY graduate center. There, you took the audition, and if they pa- if you passed, then they invited you back for like two weeks later for like their um, placement exams and that sort of thing. So I go in, I played the audition, and then afterwards they have these things called callbacks, and mm-hmm. um, afterwards. Um, They said they sent everyone home. They said, well, go on home and we'll be in touch. And so I went back to Boston and my violin professor there, Lynn Chang, who's a very good friend of mine, said to me, hey, I got a call from um, one of the professors who was on your committee and um, they, they didn't advance you. And I broke down in his studio and sobbed. I cried so hard. And I was like, no, I'm not going to New York. And I just, you know, I felt Mm -hmm. like my life was over. And I was 25 or 26, maybe 25. And I was, I just felt like my life was over. It's like, I'm not going. And I thought, okay, um, well, I had applied to the University of Texas at Austin and I had applied to Maryland. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to go to Maryland. I guess I'll, I don't want to go to Texas. And and then like two weeks later, I got like a fellowship to Texas. And so I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm going to Texas. Yeah. And, and so the way that all happened and the way it was orchestrated that was the right move for me because when I got to Texas and I started working with my professor there, Daniel Ching, who was my doctoral um, advisor, that was really when I learned, like I said, how to work and how to work smart. And he, he was such an influential person in my life that when I look back on everything, it totally makes sense that I was supposed to go there because all the lessons that I learned from him helped prepare me for this career that I didn't even know was waiting for me. Mm. I had no idea. But if I would have said, well, I'm not going to go to Texas. I'm just going to go to New York City and I'll try again. That was not the right move. The right move was for me to go to Austin. Mm. That was the right move. Now, I could have worked really hard and went to New York, right? But I would have been working really hard, but I probably wouldn't have been working very smart. And I've probably made a lot more mistakes than I would have probably been able to handle at that time. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, I'm always asking myself, what is the next right move for me? Where is it that I want to be a year from now? Mm-hmm. I knew in Boston that I wanted to become a college professor. I knew I wanted to play Carnegie Hall. So I kept asking myself, what place is going to help me get there? I thought yeah. it was Juilliard. I thought it was being in New York City, but it wasn't. It was me having to go to Texas to not only learn how to become a better violinist, but also how to become a good teacher. And that led me back to Seattle. Awesome. You know what I I mean? Yeah. And I love the idea of having, I like that you have that grand scale goal of this is what I'd ultimately like to do, but then pan back and say, What's what's the next step that will get me in that direction and have more micro goals along the way? And I I am noticing in my own life and just hearing stories of other people's journey is sometimes when we try and have the ultimate control or think mm. we know the, the magical journey we want to go down, we take away the space for that magic to actually come in and create something special that is meant for us. And so this is just a fabulous example of you can have those, I'd really love to do this and I'd love to do this and then leave some room for magic. Yeah. I I think that when you let your own personal, your own personal kind of path just help you lead the way, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You're, you're going to be fine. But you do have to ask those questions. Like, like I knew for me, I was going to become a college professor. I didn't know how right. it was going to happen, but I right. knew it was going to happen. So I had to follow the steps in order to make that happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Going to New York was not the place for me. And, you know, I'll also say this, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will relate to this. My story and my path and my just journey is not like everyone else's. Mm-hmm. And and I'm so thankful for that because it has really allowed me to create the type of space that I want to function in and the type of place that I want to live in and that I want to work in. And, and I'm really thankful for that. You know, um, I did not have a... a a traditional kind of path of playing the violin since I was three or four years old and signing up for conservatory when I was like eight and, you know, having, you know, parents who took care of private violin lessons and going to all the top summer camp. Like I had to go a completely different route and I'm so thankful for it because it's landed me exactly where I am right now. And, and I think in my own career that, um, it's very different than all of my my peers, mm-hmm. you know. So, and I'm thankful for that. I really am. Awesome, because that allows you to just bring so many different skills and think out of the side of the box. What I love, and this kind of leads into what I'd love to talk about. Um, I'd love to now discuss Key to Change, which yeah. is your nonprofit organization that in, inspires underserved youth. And I love when I was reading the description online, how you talked about 
how it supports the development of self-aware leaders. Would you tell me a little bit more about how how you shape your students or what self-aware leaders means to you and the students that you're working with? Oh, wow. Um, I think when we're talking about self-aware leaders with students, we're talking about kids who acknowledging students who have a voice and allowing their voices to be heard. Hmm. When you empower a student to speak, leadership in their own worlds naturally happens. Yeah. Naturally happens. It's organic, right? Yeah. South King County students, they are very interesting because where they live, they've got the east side to their right. Just south of there, they have Pierce County. And just north of them, they have Seattle proper. And yet, all three of those counties that I just mentioned, or just Seattle proper, have more resources and access to resources than those students and families who live in South King County. Hmm. When you're driving down I-5, people aren't getting off at the Kent exit. They're not yeah. getting, they're going, they're getting off at Tukwila and going to the mall. Mm-hmm. But they're not going east to SeaTac and Des Moines and Tiberian or going southeast to Renton, you know. And, and that is, that whole demographic has been heavily under-resourced. And so giving those students a voice, giving those students an opportunity to feel heard and welcome to share and express how they feel are the ingredients for them to become self-aware leaders. It is the opportunity for them to see their own worth, to see that they are important, that they are amazing, and that they deserve to be um, they deserve to be respected. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Key to Change does. Is, Amazing. And, and we provide that. Music is just the vehicle. Right. Most of these kids are not going to go on and become concert violinists or, you know, they're not going to play in major symphony orchestras. And that's not the point. The point right. is to teach them how to become responsible young adults so that then when they become of age, they can take what they've learned in our program and apply it and pass it on to someone else. So what is the evidence of a self-aware leader? Well, Mm -hmm. I can tell you this, this happens almost like clockwork. And this is part of our culture. Students 
have to miss a lesson or they miss, you know, a class. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, Dr. Morris, I've got to go out of town or I can't make tomorrow. Can I send you my practice videos and can you watch them and provide me feedback? Mm. And I get that probably at least once or twice a week. Where a kid or, hey, Dr. Morris, I'm having an issue with shifting. Mm-hmm. Here's a video. Can you look at it and tell me what you think I'm doing wrong? I'll get that from a sixth grader. Wow. Now, There's, that's amazing. I, yeah. I tell kids, hey, record your practice, send it to me. You know, they're like, eh, whatever. Right. But then they start hearing or seeing other kids do it and then they don't want to feel left out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's that positive kind of peer pressure, that that positive reinforcement and I write them back. Wow. And 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 the culture of excellence. The students said that. They said it. And they support each other. And so you've got kids from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, you know, all different different um races coming together to learn music. It's it's pretty brilliant and just beautiful. Yeah. I love that example of it's so concrete but it's it's allowing the students to see that feedback is good. Yeah. And so there are so many adults that can't even get to the level of help me see what I'm not seeing, can you give me some feedback? And so to teach them early on that that is a positive and that's something that should be sought after. That's amazing. That's incredible. So mm. I love hearing examples like that because we often hear the language, but it's like, what does it practically mean in the organization of how to build that? Um, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. And it's inspiring. It's yes. really inspiring because then as the teacher, I'm like, oh, I need to step my game up. Right. You know, because these kids, they depend on me and, and they depend on, um, they, they are expecting me to show up because they're showing up. Yeah. Another thing that caught my eye when I was looking across your website is that there was the part about dispelling the starving artist mentality and providing them the <laughs> the education and the tools so that if this is something that they want to go into, they have the tools and they can see it as a very successful, viable career um, and that the arts are seen as, you know, very much worthy of investment. I, that to me was very empowering as well. As you said, it's music is largely the vehicle, but I think that is a message that sticks so heavily with a lot of people is the programming that in order to be a musician or an artist, you have to stick by the starving artist mentality. Mm. Mm. So I loved, I loved that note of just challenging common programming. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I I mean, the starving artist mentality is a, it's, it's a uh, mindset. Mm -hmm. It's a mindset. 
How did you break through that in your life? Because I know it's, I know you had those challenging, you know, professors, instructors, Mm -hmm. and you didn't have adults around you echoing that message to you. How did you come about it and actually stop and question whether that was something you wanted to carry forward? I think some of it, well, a lot of it just stems from how I was raised. Okay. You know, um, I've had very supportive parents. My mother in particular has always said, you know, son, you can do anything you want. You just got to put your mind to it. You know, don't accept, don't accept what you know is not for you. You know, and I think just, again, knowing who you are is really key. Um, yeah, there are just so many instances, even colleagues, you know, like, like I remember my first few years of teaching at the university, you know, I, I was 29 when I started. Wow. So young. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do yeah. You know, you know, you walk into a, a faculty meeting or, you know, like a meeting with all the college professors or, you know, some sort of committee meeting. You're the youngest in there, you know, and everyone's old enough to be your dad or your grandpa. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But understanding, like, knowing who you are, so important. So important. And, uh, and being able to, um, accept that, accept who you are and, and understand that you deserve better. Like I knew I've, I've always known I was destined for something great. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew that I, that I was placed on this earth to do good work and to give back. And I knew I was destined for greatness. Always knew it. I've known it since I was a child. Amazing. I yeah. Mean, and I, I, I think how you're, you're raised and the influence of adults um, as a child is so important. Um, Cause my mom definitely made sure I knew I was somebody. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, even though I had a lot of, you know, issues and 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 trying to please people and that sort of thing for, for a long while, I I still knew I was somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. I imagine you only have about an hour a week with your students, whether it's one-on-one lessons or in your group lessons that you do. How do you maximize the impact and create connection with your students in those limited moments? Mm, great question. Well, I see my kids at least two times a week, sometimes okay. three. Okay. Um, I always ask them how they're doing. And I, uh, classical music has this higher article. Uh, it, classical music has this hierarchical, unhealthy model of 
what who the teacher is and who the student is. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. As the teacher, you're the master and you're supposed to listen to me as the teacher because I'm right and you're wrong. Mm. That is classical music. Mm-hmm. That is that is generally how um, classical music is perceived, which in my opinion is a form of white supremacy. Mm. With my students, I always start out by asking them, how you doing? Yeah. I treat them as people. How you doing? What's going on in your life? You know, mm-hmm. I have some students who are a little bit more reserved than others. You know, some students, you know, you can go a little deeper. Ooh, I see you got your hair done. That looks, that's cute. <gasps> you noticed Dr. Morris? Yeah, of course I noticed. Mm-hmm. You know, or, um, hmm, your violin is really out of tune. Have you been practicing? You practicing more than normal? <gasps> you noticed? Yeah, I noticed. You know, seeing them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, and a little tease every now and then never hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, oh, you you got a new you got a new top. Most of my students are girls, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you got a, you got a little, nice little top there. You um, are you trying to impress someone with that top? No. You know, <laughs> <laughs> little glimpse into their world. Right, right, right. I mean, you just try to relate to them. You know, yeah. you just try to relate to the students. You know, oh, did you hear the new Beyonce? Or oh, did you see what happened on Instagram? Or you know, you, you just you just try to speak their their quote love language, right? Yeah. Like you know, that's just you just vibe with them for five minutes. You know, you ask them how they're doing. You try to get a laugh or two out of them, and then you get to business. Yeah. You know, how do you connect and find? Or do you find new students? So how do how do students find you or enter into the organization? Students, and now it's becoming more of a referral because there's a whole parent element to it too. Because mm-hmm. parents talk, you know. Yeah. And um, Key to Change is now the program where it is noticeably uh, students who come in who are either beginners or maybe they, they're struggling on their violin or viola, or maybe they're having behavioral issues at school or at home. They come in, we work with them, attitude changes hmm. completely. Yeah. So the parents are like, what you feeding these kids? Because my daughter has gotten better at the violin and She's not talking back as much as she used to, or she's not, hmm. you know, he, he, his behavior at school has changed or I'll hear from their teachers. Their teachers hmm. will reach out and say, oh my gosh, you know, you've had such a positive impact on, on our, you know, on this student or that student. And man, they're just taking so much more pride in, in their schoolwork or, or in their, their, their delivery as kids. And, wow. and, you know, so it's really a program that becomes quite transformational um, in the sense that we're working with kids on um, 
kind of like the whole person. It's a more holistic music experience for our students, you know? And that's why our numbers, excuse me, that's why our numbers are so high. So like between COVID, when COVID first hit, you know, and, and all the way up till, till now, 90% of our students have had perfect attendance. 90. That's so good. 90, 90% of our students have had perfect attendance. 95% of our students, you know, indicated that they feel like, you know, they've made significant progress on their instrument. Like, you know, those are incredibly high numbers for a demographic of, of kids who, you know, people don't really think amount to much. Yeah. Because of the county. I'd love to touch on the impact of COVID, COVID for a moment and yeah. how you have transferred everything over to video lessons and even the group lessons are on video. Would you share a little bit about how that's looked? And just, I know we talked for a little bit before this about just how well the students adapted. Yeah. You know, I think our students, they adapted very well, but we had to adapt first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kids were out of school for a month. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and by the way, we didn't miss one week of lessons, not one. Wow. Now for me, it was crazy because I was actually in Orlando, Florida when ground zero kind of hit Seattle. Mm. I was there at a conference. And so when I came back, I came back into absolute mayhem because I had to first deal with the university, you know, and, and then of course key to change. And, um, but because I've always had technology be a part of our lessons, it actually was not very difficult for us to, switch to being online. Good. Um, so that part was easy for us. Um, but we did spend a considerable amount of time revamping the curriculum. Um, but we were able to do that fairly quickly and get kids going because what I wanted to do was just create some sort of normalcy for these kids. So about maybe a couple weeks in, um, I asked kids, I said, well, what do you miss most about school? You know, common answers. I miss my friends. I miss teachers. I miss, you know, I miss socializing. But numerous students said, I miss the academics. I miss not going to math. I miss science. A lot of kids said they missed science. Mm. So I said, hmm, okay. If we created some sort of like academic lecture series, you know, where we bring in an expert, once a week that comes in, talks about biology or talks about math or talks about, um, if I bring in a sociologist to talk about social issues, would you guys come? Oh yeah, I'd come. So boom, voila. Two weeks later, we had a lecture series. Amazing. Yeah. How cool and, is that? And we, we invited professors from all across the country to come in and wow. spend an hour a week, once a week with our kids talking about their careers, doing science experiments with them via Zoom, doing all sorts of different things just to keep our students engaged. Wow. 
You want to know how how fast productivity went up? Yeah. Fast. Fast. Super fast. Wow. Because now the kids know, oh my gosh, this is an organization that's really going to be here for me. Yeah. So in the in the midst of mayhem that was happening at their schools and with their teachers and everything like that, they knew they could depend on key to change. Yeah. And that consistency that we all needed. Yeah. And kids especially, they love structure. Yeah. Kids love structure. They may not admit that they like it, but they like it. What have you learned from your students? Empathy. Hmm. How to show up. Um, how to work smart. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. those three things are what I've learned. I'm so inspired by them, you know, and, um, and I'm inspired by this work. This is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of hard work. Um, but it's fun. And I'm so thankful, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm thankful for it. I mean, you have to have just a very full schedule between teaching at the university plus the organization. Mm. I imagine you don't have much downtime. You'll be surprised. I do. Yeah? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. I make time. And, Good. And, and I'm also in school. I've been in school for the last year. So I'm enrolled in an executive program, executive certificate program at Harvard um, Business School and have been for the last year. Um, And surprisingly, you know, yeah, I'm really busy and there's a lot going on, but um, (laughs) I make time for the things that are important, but I also say no a lot. And I think that with any successful entrepreneur, or just anyone in general who wants to be successful has to understand that you cannot say yes to everything. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's such a great message. I think that goes back to your work smart on the things Mm. that are going to actually make a difference. Bingo. Or that fit within your, your personal journey of where you're trying to go. Yeah. Like you, you can't say yes to everything. You've yeah. got to say no. Mm-hmm. What was the spark of inspiration that led you to discover that key to change was something that you really wanted to do? Uh, during my world tour, um, mm-hmm. I learned so much being on that tour and I met, an enormous amount of people, thousands of people, lots and lots of students. And I was so moved and inspired because in every country that I went to, um, I started seeing themes. Oh, these kids in Tanzania are the same way that they are in Australia. Mm. They want to get better. They, they, um, they love school. They they horse boys, middle school boys love to horse play, and they mm. love. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I started seeing these themes, and I think that sometimes you 
you think, okay, if you go to a certain country or you go to even a state here in the United States, like all oh, the kids are going to be so much different. But I was actually finding that the kids are really similar. And I was really inspired by that because um, I, I just learned so much by observing and watching and teaching. And I'll never forget it. I was on the plane coming home um, from China and and I kept thinking, how can I how can I share what I have learned with my community? And I didn't want to do a lecture. I didn't I just was like, nobody cares about that. A, a lecture mm-hmm. that's so academic and boring. Like, ugh. Yeah. And I thought about a documentary and I was like, ugh. No, that doesn't feel right either. And so I just kept thinking and I was scribbling all these ideas down on this little napkin. And I thought, oh, I should start a studio. Mm. I should start a violin studio where kids come in. They take lessons with me. We bring in guest artists to do master classes. We'll do it at a super high level. I have a really badass curriculum. And yeah, we'll, we'll transform the lives of kids in South King County. That's what we're going to do. So that was literally how it happened. So key to change really is a response to my world tour. Mm. It's a response. So all the work that I'm doing with these students is just a continuation of the work I was doing around the world. Mm. That's amazing. And you made a film about that world tour Correct. The breakthrough. I, I made, yeah, I made a film um, based on the music and life of the Chevalier de Saint George or yes. Joseph Boulogne, um, and took that around the world. And you know, <laughs> I'm glad that this is a podcast for entrepreneurs because I think people will really appreciate the story. That film was never supposed to happen. That. Really? God no! I mean, it's been at the Louvre in Paris. And, listen, listen. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, my friend. That film. <laughs> remember, I told you earlier that yeah. it's all about what your path is supposed to be, right? Yeah. And at that time, I. Oh God. I, I I screwed this up so bad. Well, I wasn't even that screwed it up. I it was a failure, but it wound up being the it's all in how you respond to circumstances. Okay. So anyway, so I had I was supposed to record an album actually of the music of Joseph Boulogne. It's it's now I've recorded the album. It's the music's all done. But at that time, I spent whole a lot of money. Okay. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this world tour and I'm going to tour with this album and um, it's going to be great. Well, I only had three days to record the album, which was already like red flag. Number one, don't record an album in three days. Right. But I thought I could. Okay. Ran out of time. Hmm. I was like, oh my God, I, we, we literally ran out of time. We weren't able to get the whole album completed. I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I was like, 
what the hell am I going to do? And how am I going to tell my investors that I just wasted all their money on an album that's not even finished yet? Mm. What am I going to do? I was a wreck. And I'll never forget it. I was out to happy hour with two of my friends. And one of my friends said, oh, well, why don't you like, you need like some sort of like documentary or film. Like Quentin, just think outside the box. Like, why don't you like make something video with the music you have? Mm. And I was like, Mm, that could be kind of cool. She's like, yeah, but if you do it, you can only shoot it in Paris. Don't do it here because you, you need the authenticity of Paris. Like, mm. I was like, you're right. So I got to thinking about it. And of course, I went back to my notepad and I started scribbling out ideas. And I was like, oh, maybe I could make a film. I could take the music, the music that I have, I could use as the soundtrack that's recorded for the film. Yeah, I'll make a little short film. And so then I started power of Google, Googling like how to do a film script, how to like, and the more I kept thinking about it, I was like, wait, I wrote this whole treatise paper on the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Why don't I just turn that into a screenplay? Hmm. So that's what I did. So a treatise, like it's like a com- a, a condensed version of a uh, dissertation. Okay. So I basically turned that paper into a screenplay, and then I utilized my resources. I had a friend who knew a friend who had a friend of a friend, um, who had contacts at the Louvre and. Versailles Castle and hey, we were able to shoot there. And so wow. I took a skeleton crew out there. I I totally betted on myself. Um mm-hmm. I took out a small loan and um flew three other people and myself to Paris and we spent 13 days in, in Europe in, in France. Wow. And we shot all over France. And um and one of the places that we were able to shoot was at the Louvre Museum. And um, we shot at the Louvre on the second to last day. Hmm. It was incredible. And then the Louvre were so excited. They said, well, we want to give you your European debut. So Hmm. a year later, I flew back to France, took my mom, and I debuted my film and, and my whole breakthrough project at the Louvre. Wow. And that all came in response to a big <laughs> failure. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, it's when you have failure, which is inevitable, it's not about the failure, but it's how you respond to it. So this whole thing with like wow. COVID right now, like, yeah. you know, God, we, key to change, you know, had some major hits, but it was all in how we responded. And, Gosh, we came out more on top than we we probably would have if COVID didn't exist. Yeah. That's so, amazing. It's all in how you respond. It's all in how you respond to what is thrown at you. 
Beautiful. My final question for you. Hmm. What is the best piece of career advice that you have received or that you would offer to others? Best career advice that I have ever received. Follow your gut. Mm. I think that's something that I've received and that I would give. Follow your gut. Know your worth. Never beg. Don't beg. Because then you seem desperate. And I guess I'm giving now the advice part. Um, There are dumb questions. You know that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't believe when people say, oh, don't ever ask. There's, There's no such thing as a stupid question. When it comes to business, yes, there is. And I'm going to tell you why. When I am, when someone is either pitching to me an idea or someone wants to work with me on something, if they are asking questions that is easily found on the internet Mm. or questions that they should know, that says to me that they have not done their homework. And that also gives me an idea of how they work. I'm very detail-oriented. I'm very busy. If you are not prepared when we work together on a project or you are asking questions that you should already know the answers to, that gives me a little bit of insight as to how you are as a person. Mm -hmm. It also gives me insight as to how you work and what your thought process is. And those are reasons why I would decide not to work with you. And so I think um, understanding that there are stupid questions and that you should be prepared. And always, always do your best because while you may not think anyone is looking, people are watching. And good work, good, fantastic, excellent work never goes unnoticed, ever, Mm. ever. It never goes unnoticed. People may not verbally acknowledge your work, but it doesn't go unnoticed. Mm. That's the advice I would give. I think that's a fantastic note to wrap up on. Quentin, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. You are a true inspiration. Oh, thank you. There are so many things we did not even have time to touch on, but um, I definitely will go and watch your TED Talk for everyone listening. You have (laughs) given a a TED Talk on the age of the artist entrepreneur, which I'm excited to dive into and learn about more of your approach of taking entrepreneurship and tying it with the arts and just creating such impact in the world. So thank you for Mm. all the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Big thank you to Quentin for sharing your time and your story with us. I just found you so inspirational and I know that there are several other people out there that probably 
we're able to see their story in their life a little bit differently and maybe see new ways that we can combine different areas to create something unique to us. I hope you guys are doing well. If you'd head over and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, be greatly appreciated. And I will see you next time on another episode of Defining Roles. Defining Roles.